Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. On the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Last week, we talked about the three new articles on LDS.org. And this week, I want to talk about race in the priesthood, the ban. It's being put into place. It's being rescinded. The commentary on the reasons why sense, tying that into the new article from the church, and perhaps finishing by having a conversation about policy versus doctrine, and why doctrine is not always doctrine. Let us start this conversation in the beginning by understanding that when the church was restored, Joseph, Brother Joseph had given priesthood to men of African descent. And it seems like he was very inclusive of blacks in the church and their participation in the gospel. Sometime around 1852, from the article on LDS.org, it is insinuated that Brigham Young put into place the ban without giving it, without the church, how can I say it, within the present day without the church acknowledging whether that came from God or was a policy by just Brigham Young. That we don't know. But we know the ban was put into place around 1852 by President Brigham Young, second prophet of the church. We we also know that over the course of time that different theories were put into place. Some theories spoke of those of African descent as having the mark of Cain. Other theories talked about those of color being less valiant in the pre-existence. And so there's these theories that were out there. Now, we sometimes want to talk about them as if they were just looked at as theories, even in the early history of the church. But that's not the case. And I'm not trying to, to stir the pot, but I want us to be... I want us to really know this issue, and I think it's one that, that I, anyway, find very interesting, and I think its implications are far-reaching. There was a man by the name of Nelson Lowry. I'm sorry, Dr. Lowry Nelson. I've got his name backwards. Dr. Lowry Nelson, member of the church, very passionate about the gospel, one of these individuals who seems to have a very good internal 
internal radar for right and wrong. And as he looked at the ban on priesthood to those of color and the ban on any member of color being able to go to the temple and receive those exalting ordinances, he struggled with that. And so he wrote, he wrote the mission president in his area a letter communicating with him because the mission president had asked him his opinion on the church opening up areas where people of color made up a, a, a majority. I think one of the places they talked about was like Brazil. And Brother Nelson wrote back to the mission president in all honesty saying, look, I love the gospel and it's a blessing to my life and it'll be a blessing to these folks' lives. But at the end of the day, I think it's best that the church stay out of these areas until they resolve this issue with the priesthood ban. Because here, unlike the United States, racism is such a much smaller issue and such a, such has such a less, has, has less of an impact on the people that live here that by bringing the church here and now adding this, this divisive policy that it's going to cause this culture problems. And the mission president wrote him back and essentially said he was disappointed that Brother Nelson felt that way. Somehow the correspondence ends up moving up to the first presidency. And so Brother Lowry Nelson writes the first presidency to express his thoughts because of this correspondence with the mission president. And so he he shares the mission president's letter to him. He shares his letter to the mission president. In the first presidency, he writes him back. And so I wanted to share to share this. He gets a letter typed out, I believe, by Joseph Anderson, secretary to the first presidency. But it is signed by the first presidency at the time, George Albert Smith, J. Reuben Clark Jr., and David O. McKay. It is dated July 17th, 1947. It's addressed to Dr. Lowry Nelson, Utah State Agricultural College, Logan, Utah. It says, Dear Brother Nelson, as you have been advised, your letter of June 26th was received in due course. And likewise, we now have a copy of your letter to President Meeks. And he was the mission president. We have carefully considered their contents and are glad to advise you as follows. We make this initial remark. The social side of the restored gospel is only an incident of it. It is not the end thereof. The basic element of your ideas and concepts seems to be that all God's children stand in equal positions before him in all things. Your knowledge of the gospel will indicate to you that this is contrary to the very fundamentals of God's dealings with Israel, dating from the time of his promise to Abraham regarding Abraham's seed and their position vis-a-vis God himself. Indeed, some of God's children were assigned to superior positions before the world was formed. We are aware that some higher critics do not attempt this. Sorry, we are aware that some higher critics do not accept this, but the church does. Your position seems to lose sight of the revelations of the Lord touching the pre-existence of our spirits. The rebellion in heaven and the doctrine that our birth into this life and the advantages under which we may be born have a relationship in the life here too. From the days of the prophet Joseph Smith, even until now, it has been the doctrine of the church, never questioned by any of the church leaders, that the Negroes are not entitled to the full blessings of the gospel. Furthermore, your ideas as we understand them appear to contemplate the intermarriage of the Negro in white races, a concept which has heretofore been most repugnant to most normal-minded people from the ancient patriarchs till now. God's rule for Israel, his chosen people, has been endogamous, endogamous, I don't know this word, E-N-D-O-G-A-M-O-U-S, 
Modern Israel has been similarly directed. We are not unmindful of the fact that there is a growing tendency, particularly among some educators, as it manifests itself in this area, toward the breaking down of race barriers in the matter of intermarriage between whites and blacks, but it does not have the sanction of the church and is contrary to church doctrine. And so, as we kind of work our way through this issue... I simply want it to be clear, and and I get it. You know, I have no problem with leaders being infallible or uh, being fallible and making mistakes. I've got no problem with with those who've gone before thinking something was right in the eyes of God and being mistaken. That doesn't hurt my testimony. But I want to be clear on this point that at least at this moment in time, that the first presidency and the church at large believed this, both the doctrine that the and I'll just read it here to be sure I say it right, that the Negroes are not entitled to the full blessings of the gospel, that that is doctrine, and that it is also, in terms of race barriers and the matter of intermarriage between whites and blacks, it does not have the sanction of the church and is contrary to church doctrine. So the leaders of the church make a pretty a pretty good stand here that these policies at this time were understood by them to be doctrine. And they intimate that throughout the church, including all the top brethren of the church, this is not a, a decision where the first presidency thinks one thing and the quorum of the twelve disagree. They make it pretty clear that from their point of view, their perspective, the church is united in this matter, that that intermarriage, uh, interrace marriage uh, is is contrary to the doctrine of the church and that the ban in place is doctrine of the church. We know in 1978 that Spencer W. Kimball received a revelation. And that revelation essentially put to end the ban and any of the previous views that people had for the ban, for the ban, sorry. And shortly thereafter, Elder Bruce R. McConkie gave a talk in 1978 on August 18th. And Bruce R. McConkie, member of the Quorum of the Twelve, Elder McConkie says this. He says, there are statements in our literature by the early brethren which we have interpreted to mean that the Negroes would not receive the priesthood in mortality. I have said the same things, and people write me letters and say, you said such and such, and how is it now that we do such and such? And all I can say to that is that this is that it is time disbelieving people repented and got in line and believed in a living modern prophet. Forget everything I have said, or what President Brigham Young, or what President George Q. Cannon, or whomsoever had said, in days past, that is contrary to the present revelation. We spoke with a limited understanding and without light and knowledge that has now come into the world. We get our truth and our light, line upon line and precept upon precept. We have now added a new flood of intelligence and light on this particular subject, and it erases all the darkness and all the views and all the thoughts of the past. They don't matter anymore. Close quote. And so you have... Elder McConkie disavowing anything he had said in the past. You also have him doing the same with any leader in the past who had also, who had also spoke and putting to an end, essentially, this, this segment of church people who, who had picked, cherry picked quotes from here and there to, to try to come up with reasons why the ban was in place. He says, forget all that, essentially. That's done. It's over with. Put it behind you. It's time to repent. And to follow that up, Elder Holland, was interviewed on PBS, and he was asked a question. He was asked, this is the the interviewer at PBS says this. He says, I talked to many blacks and many whites as well about the lingering folklore, about why blacks couldn't have the priesthood. These are faithful Mormons who are delighted about this revelation, and yet who feel something more should be said about the folklore, and even possibly about the mysterious reasons for the ban itself, which was not a revelation. 
It was a practice, so if you could briefly address the concerns Mormons have about this folklore and what should be done. Elder Holland says this, quote, One clear-cut position is that the folklore must never be perpetuated. I have to concede to my earlier colleagues. They, I'm sure in their own way, were doing the best they knew to give shape to the policy, to give context for it, to give even history to it. All I can say is however well-intended the explanations were, I think almost all of them were inadequate and or wrong. It probably would have been advantageous to say nothing, to say we just don't know. And as with many religious matters, whatever was being done was done on the basis of faith at that time. But some explanations were given and had been given for a lot of years. At the very least, there should be no effort to perpetuate those efforts to explain why that doctrine existed. I think to the extent that I know anything about it as one of the newer and younger ones to come along, we simply do not know why that practice, that policy, that doctrine was in place. And so I'm not going to assume I know what is Elder Holland's intent by every word or sentence that he uses. But my feeling is in that last sentence when he says, we simply do not know why that practice, that policy, that doctrine was in place. My personal interpretation of what he's saying is that he doesn't know whether it's a practice, a policy, or a doctrine. That we simply don't know. We simply don't know why the ban was put into place in the first place. If Brigham Young decided to do it on his own for some some earthly, cultural, principal reason going off his best information, or whether God revealed to Brigham Young that it should be a doctrine of the faith, that the ban should be implemented. We just don't know. And I, and I feel that's what Elder Holland's trying to do. He's basically saying we don't know. Now, there are other ways to interpret that. It's possible that he starts to grab at the word practice, that policy, and finally finds the word he wants to use when he concludes saying that doctrine. And, and when he says we simply do not know, he may only be speaking to the theories behind the ban. So it's possible he's acknowledging the ban was a doctrine and that he's simply saying whatever theories to give it, to give it context, he doesn't know why those were put in place. So you're welcome to read him any way you want. I, I just, I feel like with the new LDS.org article on race and priesthood and with this quote from Elder Holland, the church would prefer not to have to be put on the spot and answer definitively whether the ban was a revelation from God or a practice put into place solely by Brigham Young and, and early leadership. So going from there, we have the new Race and Priesthood article. In the last paragraph, we read this last week, but we'll read it again. In the last paragraph, it says, Today the church disavows the theories advanced in the past, that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse, or that it reflects actions in a premortal life, that mixed race marriages are a sin, or that blacks or people of any other race or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism, past and present, in any form. So we have the church disavowing the theories. Again, the church itself doesn't really want to hit on the ban itself. They don't, they don't want to be definitively put on the spot to declare the ban as having come by revelation or having come by just the reasoning of men. And so I'm not going to delve into that either. I'll just leave it be. But what I, what I'm, what I struggle with is this idea of policy versus doctrine. We recognize that the brethren of the church unitedly felt like the ban was doctrine and that intermarriage between races was doctrine. And trying to add on top of that, you have Elder Anderson's talk in one of the recent conferences where he says a few question their faith when they find a statement made by a church leader decades ago that seems incongruent with our doctrine. There is an important principle that governs the doctrine of the church. The doctrine 
is taught by all 15 members of the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve. It is not hidden in an obscure paragraph of one talk. True principles are taught frequently by many. Our doctrine is not difficult to find. Now, I'm not trying to throw Elder Anderson under the bus. I really am not. And I just, I want to share just some thoughts here because doctrine versus policy versus practice, it's a difficult thing to get at. Number one, it's definitions. If you were to ask a hundred Latter-day Saints to define doctrine, it would be defined different ways. Some might define doctrine as simply the teachings of the church. Me personally, when I hear the word doctrine, my definition is absolute truth that is revealed from God. Now, I grant that that truth might change. In other words, God might decide from time to time to implement a practice like polygamy. And then at another time, he might rescind that practice. But that both directives came from God. He was in approval of both. And as they were being practiced under his sanction, they were true. What what I struggle with is when we call something doctrine and it doesn't come from God and it's not his truth. And there is a eagerness on behalf of us as church members to want to have, again, lines drawn in the sand on everything. And so sometimes we we overstate the case. Rather than sit back and simply say, I don't know, we're the true church, right? We should have answers for everything. We should be able to put everything in its context. And so sometimes there's this eagerness to overstate the case and to apply theories or personal reasoning and opinions to to behaviors and then to label them as doctrine. And so when we look at the first presidency in 1947, they're essentially doing everything that Elder Anderson is talking about here. Let me read this again. There is an important principle that governs the doctrine of the church. The doctrine of the church is taught by all 15 members of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve. In Brother Lowry Nelson's letter, is it is it intimated that all 15 members of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve believe the ban to be doctrine? Yes. It says next, it is not hidden in an obscure paragraph of one talk. True principles are taught frequently and by many. Was the ban taught frequently by many? Yes, it was. He finishes by saying our doctrine is not hard to find. Now, what the brethren today have done in this article on race and priesthood is they have backed away from wanting to be definitive on calling the ban doctrine And you see from Elder Holland's words, and again, my interpretation of them, that he is hesitant to label the ban as a policy, a practice, or a doctrine. That he, in essence, is is trying to back away from having to be put on the spot and to, to call the ban simply a policy that was wrong and to still leave the door open for it to have been a revealed doctrine. So even Elder Anderson's definition of how we come to doctrine Based on my understanding and my interpretation and my the intended meaning I see in these words, his definition doesn't work. And he finishes by saying our doctrine is not difficult to find. And I, I completely disagree. I think Mormon doctrine is super difficult to nail to a wall. It is like jello, trying to nail jello to a wall. It is almost impossible. Now, I hope that we can come to some agreement. One of the scriptures in the church that I absolutely love is Second Nephi chapter 31. And in chapter 31, the whole chapter is beautiful. Chapter 31 talks at great length about, about, uh, the, the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. It talks about faith. It talks about repentance. It talks about being baptized and then getting the gift of the Holy Ghost. It, it speaks about enduring to the end and pressing forward with steadfastness. It, it, while it doesn't speak directly, it hints at grace. 
relying wholly upon his merits of him who is mighty to save. So we realize that Second Nephi 31 contains the, the bare basics of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and I'll just tell you how I, how I apply this subject. What I do is this. For me, doctrine is truth revealed of God that I can bank on, count on, am certain of. And what I go back to is this chapter in the Book of Mormon. And I want to, sh- you know, and I've done this before. We shared this scripture before. But again, listen to Nephi's words. So in the last verse, here's what he says. He says, and now behold, my beloved brethren, this is the way. And I'm going to stop here. He's speaking of, again, what he covered in the chapter. Faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, enduring to the end by pressing forward with steadfastness and relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. This is the way. Then he continues, he says, And there is none other way nor name given under heaven whereby man can be saved in the kingdom of God. There is no other way. That's it. That's the way. There is no other way. This is it. He continues, he says, And now behold, this is the doctrine of Christ. And then here, the important key word, he says, And the only and true doctrine of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, which is one God without end. Amen. I get it. We have so many little tangents in Mormonism. And some of them are true, and some of them are speculation and opinion. But I think Heavenly Father here is trying to, and I think Nephi at least, is trying to put us into this mindset of just focus on the basics. The basics. This is the doctrine. The This is the absolute truths that do not change, that do not get adjusted. His tithing always been a commandment to every single person on the earth? I don't know. Tithing, has it always been a tenth? I don't know. Has it always been 10% of all your income? Has it always been 10 I don't know. I think there's way more flexibility there than some of us give credit to. The word of wisdom. Have, has everybody had the word of wisdom as a commandment? Nope, they haven't. Has the word of wisdom always been interpreted or understood the same way? Or has it been revealed in segments and in bits and pieces and line upon line? Yep. Is it an everlasting truth? Nope, it's not. If it was, Jesus wouldn't have drank wine. And don't tell me it was grape juice. That's baloney. The fact is, the doctrine, the pure doctrine, the only and true doctrine that can be trusted, that is everlasting, are the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. Now, I am not saying you throw out the rest. Again, many of those other tangents of the gospel are absolute truth. To back this up, there in the in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, and this was a uh, book put together by Joseph Fielding Smith in 1938, Prophet Joseph Smith said this, he said, The fundamental principles of our religion are the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ. And not just anything about Jesus Christ, they're specific here. He says that he died, was buried, and rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven. And then he says, And all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it. Think about that for a moment. And then maybe to go on, Second Nephi chapter 11, verse 5 of all the things in that glorious ministry, this is a conversation, of all the things in the glorious ministry, why did the prophet Joseph Smith use the testimony of the Savior's death, burial, and resurrection as the fundamental principles of our religion, saying that all other things are only appendages to it? The answer is found in the fact the Savior's resurrection is central to what the prophets have called the great and eternal plan of deliverance from death. And that's the second Nephi 11.5. If, if we recognize that the gospel is Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, the atonement, the plan God put in place by exercising faith, repenting, getting baptized, getting the gift of the Holy Ghost, enduring to the end by repenting, by pressing forward with steadfastness, getting up, dusting yourselves off, rolling up your sleeves and going at it again, and by, by relying wholly, completely, entirely upon him 
whose merits whose merits are mighty to save. If we grasp doctrine in that really small way and recognize that all the other things are appendages to the gospel, it may help us lighten up on having to, this need within us to define doctrine definitively, to have every true principle laid out and every false one thrown away. And while we certainly should should make that effort to do that, it should not it should not eat us up inside, which it does for me. I uh, I grow so frustrated with with the nonsense around me. But I hope, as I've kind of thought about this lesson, I hope that those of you out there who are a lot like me, that you'll be able to kind of let it go a little bit and just focus on the the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. I bear witness. That if you do that, if you focus on the first principles and ordinances of the gospel, and I'll, and I'll add one more thing. In the doctrine of Christ, I also add temple ordinances. And people will say, well, where do you get that from? How do you add temple ordinances? The other ordinances of the gospel that are outside of baptism and confirmation. Well, we talked about 2 Nephi 31, but if you turn to the next chapter, chapter 32, Nephi seems to have woken up the next day and had an epiphany. And so rather than saying this is the only and true doctrine of the Father, and this is the only way, in the next chapter in verse 6, he adds an additional allowance. He says, Behold, this is the doctrine of Christ, and there will be no more doctrine given until after he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh. And when he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh, the things which he shall say unto you, ye shall observe to do. And so with that scripture, I also add other ordinances of the gospel, other, other requirements. And I don't, I don't call, I don't leave room for this to include the word of wisdom and all these other things. Those are appendages to the gospel. But I see the saving ordinances as additional covenants that allow us to yoke with Christ and to rely wholly upon him. When we do those things, brothers and sisters, when we focus on the pure doctrine of Christ, there is plenty of room for spiritual experiences and spiritual growth. There is plenty of room to be both justified and sanctified. I bear witness that our Heavenly Father loves us, that Jesus is the Christ, that if we can can feel the spirit of the gospel of Jesus Christ and just set all the tangents aside sometimes, that our strength will be in abundance because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Shoes.